Ladies and gentlemen, we're at the edge of the universe. That's right, it exists. And there's a spaceship there. And on the spaceship is the Doctor and Donna. And also the Doctor and Donna. But is it the Doctor? Why am I talking like this? I don't know. I'm Natalie and this is the Raven on... Who's Raven on podcast subsection analytical thingy? It makes sense. Just don't think too much about it. And I should be joined by Stuart Late and my special guests, but Stuart is not here. Shakes fist at Sky. Um, I'll probably keep saying that for a while, so just bear with me. Um, but I am joined once again uh, by the fabulous, fabulous, fabulous hosts of the Best Pick Pod. Uh, please welcome all the way from London Town. It's Tom Salinsky and John Donny. Hello there. Air horns. Excitement. <laughs> Hello. Uh, yeah, an air cannon just went off and I'm covered in confetti. That's extraordinary. Yeah. <laughs> that it's the magic of uh, internet communications. It's very good. This imagine system. that. Yeah. yeah, imagine Apple releasing the um, MacBook confetti cannon. Where you could just <laughs> surprise people. I can people only imagine Tim Cook's working on that right now. That's right. That's right. It would be very sleek. It would be beautiful. It would be very perfectly engineered. Um, I guess it's time to dig deep into this episode. I guess I'm so, so excited. Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, this was one where um, they'd really kind of kept their powder dry. We saw very few images from this. Uh, we saw uh, almost no pre-publicity, lots of stuff about the toy maker next week, lots of stuff about Beep the Meep last week. And this was the one they'd kind of kept under the radar. And actually on the official Doctor Who podcast, Russell was admitting this might have backfired slightly because it led to all sorts of speculation that uh, it was going to be a special guest appearance by Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi and Tom Baker and William uh, Hart was going to be resurrected uh, and <laughs> it's going to be this huge nostalgia. Propped up in a corner. And of course, it was it was nothing of the kind. It was uh, completely original. One of the, in some ways, one of the more tropey and in some ways, one of the most original shows um, that the, sh the series has ever done, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think For that's sure. unfair. I don't know if I've ever had an experience of Doctor Who where my enjoyment of the episode was so fundamentally not what I expected after the pre-credit sequence. <laughs> mm. well, that's it, it flipped. It flipped on a dial. Now, and I have to, I have to say, obviously, we're talking about the episode Wild Blue Yonder. For the most part of it, it's David Tennant, Catherine Tate, alone in space. When the monsters arrive, they arrive in the form of David Tennant and Catherine Tate. But the pre-credit sequence is this little cutesy history moment with the Doctor and Donna landing in the apple tree, shaking an apple that lands on Isaac Newton's head, and oh my gosh, he has the fantastic idea of mavity. <laughs> and I, look, can I just tell you guys, I love a historical cutesy moment. I love history episodes. I love Doctor Who history episodes. I love any kind of you know, retconning and past visiting the past and all that stuff is right up. I'm a history nerd, so it's right up my, it's it's just my jam. But it, I don't know, something about it was so twee. Um, I don't, I just, I, and, and the, I mean, I even liked the gravity of the situation pun. I even liked, I liked that. But something about the, the, the housekeeper going, now, Mr. Newton, don't come back from that apple tree until you've had a very good idea. And then the mishearing of gravity is mavity. I don't know. I was just sitting there in the opening once the, <laughs> the title sequence started, just with my arm crossed going, well, that's it. I'm out. What the hell is that? <laughs> I did not like <laughs> and that. And then spaceship, end of the yeah. universe, 
fantastic. Like I think in, not, in, in quite a lot of ways, this is a much more interesting, more psychologically deep, more uh, genre-defying episode than last week, which was sort of Russell's greatest hits plus, uh, you know, ripped off with permission from uh, a, an old comic. Uh, but I actually ended up uh, knocking off a whole half star uh, on my blog and giving this only four and a half stars instead of five because of that <laughs> opening scene with Newton, which I just thought was so mm. silly uh, and added wow. so little to the to the story. And I just could have done without it. It was a tiny bit, we need a cold opening, doesn't it? And look, and again, it was cute. Like, it was so cute. And I love a cute thing, but d- I don't know, something about the delivery or the, uh, the I think the gravity-mavity thing, because, like, gravity wouldn't have been something he invented surely he took no, no, no. It, it was a pre- it was a word that was already used to mean weight and uh, and so on he simply codified how it worked uh, so you know mm. it's 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 a, it's a ludicrous scene or however you come at it. Um, it it was i mean it was cute the way that they included her saying mavity later in the episode a couple well, of times sort of except that then right at the end uh, she says gravity mavity and so i think that's russell saying uh, i'm not saying we're stuck with mavity now for every subsequent right. episode when we're, we're now going to have, <laughs> having done this having committed to the bit we're now going to back off from it and so if i was tempted uh to let that slide and not knock off half a star that was the point where i went no screw you i'm taking off half a star. <laughs> they're not gonna you know fly back crash into a broad uh, west end theater and hear you know alphabet singing here am i <laughs> yes. defying mavity uh-huh. doesn't have the the quiet but yeah, in terms of the switcheroo between those two, the tones of the two, you know, the, the little quick four-minute pre-credit sequence to the rest of the hour, it pulls apart. Extraordinary. I, I, I didn't dislike it. I uh, I thought it was, uh, as I say, it's a tiny bit unnecessary. Um, and, and I think potentially there just because... Um, uh, the episode itself didn't really lend itself to having uh, an obvious pre-title hook. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I mean, I can sort of see um, uh, the, the point you're going with about kind of um, being a tiny bit silly, but then I, I, I don't necessarily mind the occasional bit of silliness. Um, it, it's uh, if, if anything, it's ever so slightly just... Uh, repeating a joke that was done in the Tom Baker era, really. So, uh, with which, with with a degree more subtlety and wit from uh, Douglas Adams, I think, isn't it? Pirate Planet. Yeah. Uh, the, the, which, um, but to be very again, that sounds be, right. Yes. Uh, con- Tom Baker talks about that. having to climb an apple tree and drop uh, apples on Isaac Newton's head. Yeah. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. yeah. I do. I you know, in my own history nerd like cred. Um, when it came up, like, England, 1666, I went, oh, Great Fire of London, <laughs> yes. thinking that's oh, yeah, what it was going to be. And everyone in the room looked at me like, shh. <laughs> <laughs> and then doctor, the doctor mentioned, like, oh, 1666, don't go to London. Yeah. I mean, obviously I know that from the, the great historical document, uh, Doctor Who, The Visitation, uh, which, which gives, gives all the details of that. <laughs> um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very wide-ranging textbook. Um, about the about the limited causes <laughs> oh, of it. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, this, I mean, this is the thing because um, yeah, in, in terms of of the overall thing, it is a, as you say a little bit of silliness. But uh, as often with a lot of these sort of historical things, 
it's a degree to I suppose I suppose okay I'm thinking about it I'm trying to look at this in a, a different now I think I have mixed feelings about this because on on one level you know obviously you know because there have been a lot of talk online saying well you know Isaac Newton didn't look like that and you kind of go yeah but at the same time you know Charles Dickens didn't fight a chicken it, it's it, the world we are seeing is not our world um, so precisely what and, and, and people are also generally if anything annoyed that also annoyed that um uh, he's presented as quite likable when apparently he was a real grumpy git in real life. Uh, everyone, everyone says he's not a nice man. I uh, yeah, and definitely not hot. I said that um, to Greg, obviously the physicist uh, from the Smart Enough to Know Better podcast. I'm realizing that I'm saying names of people who your listeners possibly don't know. Um, but uh, Greg is a massive Doctor Who fan. He's a got an astrophysics degree, so he's quite into the whole space stuff. Uh, and Isaac Newton, obviously, fairly big into, you know, physics. Uh, <laughs> probably come out here and look, stare at me um, <laughs> intently. But uh, I said, the one thing I know about Isaac Newton is that apparently he was famously a very unlikable man and quite a, um, a nasty man to a lot of other people who were trying to do physics things at the time, particularly Robert Hooke, I think. And Greg was saying, yeah, there should be an episode of Doctor Who where Doctor Who goes and finds Robert Hooke and says, come with me, we'll go have travel as, around the universe and screw that Isaac Newton. Yeah. I mean, it's... It, but so on a certain level, uh, as I say, I can kind of... I can sort of see that. But then, weirdly, um, I, I got thinking about this last week in a slightly different perspective. I watched uh, the TV series uh, Revenge of the Cybermen, um, which is, uh, you know, quite an entertaining early Tom Baker one. It's not, you know, generally regarded as a classic, but it's still fun. And there's... there's The bit that it reminded me of was, with all things, the League of Gentlemen Perrier Award-winning comedy show, their sketch show. And they repeat this sketch in the first series of the League of Gentlemen TV series. And it is Mark Gatiss playing uh, the tour guide of, of an underground set cave system. And and one of the lines he said as he's going down into the caves, going, in 1975, you couldn't move here for Cybermen. Tom Baker <laughs> trips on, on that rock over there. And, and the little bit of glee in my heart um, at that sketch, at knowing that that's an accurate reference to when Revenge of the Cybermen was recorded. He, uh, to be fair, I think it's 75. I can't remember exactly when it was recorded now, but I, uh, but I can't remember what Mark said either. So, um, but the little bit of glee in my heart about the, the extra effort in comparison to say, I remember seeing Jasper Carrot talk about sort of Star Trek VI, The Journey Home, and you're going, no, 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 Jasper Carrot. You've done the, the tiniest amount of research and not bothered. Yes. And the degree to which... One makes you kind of feel a little bit nice and the other makes you kind of slightly taken out of the joke. And that's yes. the thing, I think, with, say, with Isaac Newton, and given what you're saying, I know nothing about Isaac Newton. I knew, um, you know, I knew it didn't look like that, but then that's, again, don't really mind. Yeah, um, and I don't know that much. I, I do want to of, clarify. In, in terms of what you're saying, <laughs> in terms of the actual... Yeah, yeah, but in terms of what you're saying about the history and in terms of him being grumpy, it's, it is, it's a little bit bold up to like immediately take people out of it and, and it's, it's nice if you can to do the extra level of research to kind of match the, to be as historically accurate as you can within the framework of what we're doing i remember douglas adams saying that uh, there's, there was a kind of joke that he didn't like which was kind of rooted in ignorance or deliberate misunderstanding and the, the example he would give is uh, you know that that black box flight recorder uh, that survives any crash why not make the whole plane out of that 
that's and, a, yeah, that's a bit of a tropey joke, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Douglas Adams would say, look, that, that is a joke which tells you nothing. There's no insight there. Uh, it's uh, it's just resting on sort of look how stupid I am. And why can't we have jokes that are, uh, that are going to uh, make us feel clever as an audience rather than jokes that are going to mm. make us feel dumb? Um, one time... I got, you know, if if you've watched the um, great American sitcom Brooklyn Nine-Nine, um, which I do recommend if you want just, if you just want to have, if you just like need to pick me up and you just, you just got an afternoon, you just want to unwind and kind of switch your brain off and have a laugh. Brooklyn Nine-Nine is perfect viewing for that. Um, but the characters of Captain Kevin Holt and his, no, sorry, Captain Raymond Holt and his husband, Kevin Kozner. <laughs> which makes me laugh as a as a early 90s Kevin Costner fan. Um, but uh, they're so clever and they have these incredibly, you know, deep uh, philosophical discussions or literature, high literature, high art, all these things. One time I got one um, <laughs> because they were talking about Holt making a fool of himself at um, the Christmas party and they do the flashback that Brooklyn Nine-Nine do and he said something about, well, that was uh, when Boethius wrote um, this this um, document. And I was watching going, no, Boethius didn't write that. Boethius wrote A Consolation of Philosophy, which I know because in one of my <laughs> history classes at uni I did an assignment on it. So it's the only reason I know. And then it flashed back to Holt, like, chastising himself going, Boethius didn't write that. He wrote a consolation for us. And I was like, oh my God, I got the joke. I got the joke. I got the joke. And I felt so smart. <laughs> but that was the one time that I like preempted the joke because I just happened to know that obscure piece of um, uh, literary history. Um, uh, but yeah, th those kinds of things are not for everybody. Um, they're definitely not lowest common denominator, but they're for the niche audience that they're aimed at, they're like super fun. Yeah. And that's a, yeah, that's an NBC studio sitcom. Uh, and if they can do mm. it, anyway. Uh, yeah. <laughs> should we do our minute challenges? Yes. I think I went first last week, Tom, so you should go first this Good week. Look. All right. I have terrible handwriting. Uh, so uh, I, think this says oh, me too. I think it says haunted house in space. Uh, it could say haunted horse in space. Either of those work. Oh, good point. Yeah, yes. Um, it, wasn't it nice to see Sarah Jessica Parker making a <laughs> Oh. <laughs> you can say that. Oh. I actually I cannot say that. No, it's funny because I Can I, I laugh at that? that I'm joke, not sure. I I made that joke and like immediately as I made it, I was like, oh, that's so mean. <laughs> because I don't I never got the Sarah Jessica horse thing. And it's just because she's got a long face. I guess <laughs> that's the joke. But um I never saw it myself, but I knew that was like a, a trope. And so I made that joke and had the same reaction mm -hmm. with with the gang watching the with the episode. And I was like, oh, that's so mean, that's so mean. But um yeah, sorry, I recycled that joke on you. <laughs> uh, but so, so, like we were saying before, uh, the, you know, it's an old trope. Uh, it's uh, a haunted house. You know, it's one of the one of the oldest ideas that there is. But mm. uh, these old ideas sometimes keep getting recycled because they work. Uh, and I thought this really worked. And it was so long before I really knew anything about what was going on. And I loved the way that it was parceled out so slowly and so carefully. I was. I was never bored. Uh, I just thought it was it was so fascinating, but it never felt rushed or frantic. Um, really, mm. I think Russell just trying to show the breadth of what the show can be. You know, taking the the lever marked pace and throwing it as far as he can in the opposite direction, and it still works. Mm. Works brilliantly. Well, yeah, just that sense of mystery. Um, 
talking in terms of, uh, I've been doing a bit of teaching of impro lately, but talking in terms of um, setting up a platform. And of course, you've got this strange platform where they're, yes, they've landed on a spaceship in the TARDIS. That's fairly usual for Doctor Who. But somehow the coffee that Donna spilled is so has so badly injured it, it is on fire and shooting flames out the door. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's so badly damaged. And then they get rid of the sonic screwdriver. So the sonic screwdriver is put in to replace it and then that goes. And I, I put that on my list is it's isn't it great when the doctor doesn't have the sonic? Because the yeah. sonic is such a it's such a not a not a MacGuffin, no, but it's a gizmo, you know, it's the get out of jail free card. He can do anything, and then all of a sudden he doesn't have that. And it was so um, overpowered last week, it was sort of a a, a magic wand lightsaber yes! complete kind of plot fixer. So yes, to, to then have him I denied didn't... it. Yeah, I didn't even think of that, but that's so true. Like the complete opposite to how it was used last week, which was all the time. <laughs> um but yes, I think the 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 setting up of the platform of everything is slow, nothing's really happening, nothing's here, and letting that go on for as long as it did, but keeping the engagement of, well, there's clearly a threat, the TARDIS is not here. So you know that they're, and, and the fact that they discussed the HADS, hostile action yes. thing. Yes, uh, which goes so back to this- an, an, a 1960, I want to say, nine uh, episode called The Crotons, uh, which might wow. be particularly uh, well remembered because uh, in the uh, early 1980s, after Tom Baker left and they wanted to remind British viewers that other actors had played the part, there was a repeat season, uh, which was quite a rare thing, called The Five Faces of Doctor Who. Uh, and there was exactly one four part Patrick Troughton story that existed in the archives. Uh, and so it was wow. the only one they could show because they had slots for four-part stories, uh, and it was the Crotons, and it's not a particularly w- well-remembered story, but it does include the first appearance of the Hads, then I think not referred to again until the, the show came back. There you go. I'd never heard of it, or yeah. I couldn't remember hearing it. I did have a script editor on some of the audios who uh, would obsessively mention the Hads, and we're having this bit where we're kind of going, but, but it's never used. <laughs> no. It's never used. <laughs> And he was like trying to like put the hads into everything, and you're kind of going, no, skip, stuff the hads. Uh, I quite like the crotons. It's fine. I think it's. I mean, I'd never seen Patrick Trout before, so uh, aged eleven or whatever I was, it was the most exciting thing. Uh, but uh, yeah, there there are there are now thankfully better Patrick Trout stories in the archives. Oh, probably thanks to Australians again, wasn't it? Wasn't it, it? Well, We've been be hoarding a all the. Yep. <laughs> We've been hoarding all the Doctor Who. Um, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. The haunted house trope, but the, you know, the monsters turns out it's us. Um, but with a twist. Yeah. Lots of fun. Uh, I wrote, um, this is sort of the same one, really. I wrote body horror. And then a bit further down, I wrote big hands, large gloves. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I was watching David Tennant dragging those huge hands behind him. And I went, my God, that looks fantastic. And I couldn't, again, a bit like Beep the Meep last time, I couldn't figure out how it was done. Uh, and uh, on the behind the scenes, they they did this uh, 125 cameras, whatever it was, like computer scan of him in costume. Mm. And then they used that data to make gigantic prosthetic hands. So they're based on his hands. Uh, but they mm. were real props uh, that he was then able to operate from from within inside. Uh, I saw that uh, too. It's just phenomenal. And he looked so delighted when they <laughs> yeah. when they got him to try it on. And then he was obviously squeezing the little triggers inside to make yeah. his fingers move. And you could see he just had this look of sheer delight mm. on his face. 
like a kid would when confronted with, you know, giant novelty props like that. It, that was <laughs> yes. very, very fun to see. And and the thing is, is that when I, because I didn't know if they had some CGI mixed in with that, um, but they almost, those hands were almost comical in their, yeah. you know, you've got this really creepy situation where my hands are too long and then you see this hand kind of appear. But then when you see them like flop to the ground and get dragged yeah. around, it was comical it was it was so like to me obviously the body horror but it was like body comedy it because things flopping is the flop is an inherently funny <laughs> gesture i feel <laughs> it reminded me of the joe dante directed segment of the rather uh wonky twilight zone the movie um with the um uh, the child who has the power of life and death over the family that uh, that they're still with and it was sort of Looney Tunes inflected uh, there's some other things I think uh, a bit like all well, this happens with the Matrix when I think like taking someone's mouth away all that kind of uh, all that kind of stuff yes 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 uh, or in episodes of The Simpsons when they turn out to be aliens and things and <laughs> legs pop off or yeah it's sort of silly um, but yeah his jaw going down I mean that was CGI yeah but then her leg because I think her she had the two knees in the leg and that oh, was God, yes. real. That was a real, well, it was a prosthetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, as someone who injures their leg, like knees and ankles quite frequently, I found that quite distressing. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's an interesting area, isn't it? Because it, like, veers weirdly between uh, comedy and, and horror, isn't it? It's 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 the uncanny is the thing, isn't it, that, that, um, that people lean into. And, and very, very much so because Tom and I have often discussed uh, the web series pitch meeting, and there was at least one <gasps> where you know one of the faces blow, the eyes blew up, yep. like the the pitch meeting YouTube yes. um, thumbnail, which just made me immediately go, "Oh, that, yeah." I mean, every now and then, um, you know, some of the CGI wasn't as convincing it could otherwise be. But you know, if you're kind of going to be um, complaining about the quality of special effects in Doctor Who, as if that's necessarily a problem, you should probably watch a different yes. show. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, which, which episode are you going to like? Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. It, it's, I, 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 yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of the joys of watching the old series now. I kind of tell everyone that, you know, when you used to say, you know, oh, this one has the shonky effects and this one, you know, and you go, no, they all have shonky effects yeah. now. They all basically look rubbish <laughs> now. But that's, um, that's the charm of it. Rubbish. And I think, I mean... Uh, one of the things talk you know I've discussed with with Stu and with um, others about Doctor Who being bought by Disney or funded by Disney or the Disney involvement is oh it's Disney money it's Disney money and I think you can definitely see that that has stepped up with these specials but it's not so overpowering that it isn't still Doctor Who I don't know to me you want an element of um, I don't want to say naffness but you, yeah it's not. It's not supposed to be the slickest, marvelist, endgamest thing. It's Doctor Who, and I think that's part of its charm. Well, they always and spend every in- penny they've got. You know, you don't want to have money left over yeah. at the end. Um, yeah, exactly. Especially, you don't want to have that at the uh, the, the BBC. Um, it's a little bit like uh, you had. Oh, yeah. You had um, before we started recording. Uh, you were showing us your Yes Minister script book. Uh, and of yes. course, it's, it's a thing in there that a, a government department has to spend all the money it's allocated; yes. otherwise, it gets less next time. <laughs> actually, the same is true. The same is true at the BBC. Uh, on uh, on Red Dwarf, there's a story that on, on one series it looked like they were going to underspend, uh, and then suddenly uh, the producers were running around uh, buying the cast and crew takeaways at the end of the day's filming, sending people home in taxis who would otherwise be expected to get the bus uh, because they're just desperate <laughs> to 
get rid of this cash. Otherwise, they're, they're going to come back next year and have their budget cut. It's seemingly one of the greatest things about government, but also one of the most depressing. <laughs> yes. So you don't get rewarded for like going, wow, you guys are really efficient. Maybe no. we should give you more money and you can do more things with it because you're clearly an efficient department. It's like, no, 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 no. Always spend what you got. <laughs> Um, and then I wrote down, uh, is that Marvin? Question mark. Oh, I had the it's same got a look thing. of him, hasn't it? I had the same thing yeah. about the robot. It's one of the, the very, There's... very few things I liked from the uh, basically terrible Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie uh, was the physical oh, physical design of Marvin. Uh, and, I, do, uh, I feel like you just stabbed John. Then I took him to see it for the first oh. time. I'm to blame. Yeah. Uh, it was, oh, yeah. No. We hosted an open air yeah. screening, rooftop screening of it. And oh, my, I, I think my eyes bled for weeks. <laughs> oh. Well, at least there was alcohol involved. You could numb the pain. I think we did have a, a pint, yes. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, the, um, the the design on the TV series is fine. Uh, it's sort of a generic stock 1970s BBC science fiction robot. And that and the, and the joke works. Uh, and, it's, you know, saintly Stephen Moore doing the voice, as he had on the radio show. Uh, and uh, Alan Rickman's fine on the movie but there's something about the way that uh the movie robot prop kind of slumps which yes. is just perfect uh and uh it's yeah, a, that, a uh, slump and a, a slump and a, like a waddle when he walks it's like, this yes. sort of, like uh, i can't i don't have the energy to pick my feet off the ground and something about this, the uh, the slow robot here uh, just really reminded me of Marvin. And I don't know if that was deliberate. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but it certainly reminded me of him. So if you can hear that, well, Toast the Cat would like to have her say about Marvin as well. Oh, hello, Toast. Um, oh, Hazel the Cat has just come out. She's left Greg. That's a, that's a rarity. Um, I Well, on my list, Tom, I wrote the robot reminded me of Marvin. Um but the corridor uh, buttresses, I guess you would say, this kind of the, the, the long corridor where this is basically set, you know, the, in the rooms off the long corridor, it was held up by these kind of, I guess, like a, a, a buttress and a piston almost looking, buttress is the word that keeps coming to mind, but the big pillars that were, anyway, the pillars reminded me of R2-D2. I don't <laughs> know why, but they were like kind of rounded at the top and little cylindricals with, and so I was like, oh, is someone on the design team putting in little nods to other sci-fi things? Because the other thing about the ship itself, and you mentioned Red Dwarf, is, you know, when they sent the camera out and it was so astronomically big, you know, and they got to see that the ship was so huge and the way it kind of scanned down the side reminded me a bit of Red Dwarf. Yeah. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if someone on the design team was, like, putting in little nods to other great sci-fi moments and characters. Uh, then I wrote uh, Wilf. Aww. And again, we, we sort of knew this was coming uh, because uh, in some of the stuff around um, episode one, we'd seen Bernard Cribbins at the read-through, uh, so we knew he was going to be involved. But that was just a, a lovely scene. I think that's all he was able to shoot. I think that's all we're going to see of him. Uh, we had a nice um, caption dedicating the episode to him at the end uh and just uh, just what a what an absolute gent what an absolute peach of a man there's an absolutely mm. delightful bit of him being interviewed on set one of the behind the scenes things and uh, i guess the question was something like um uh is it is it nice working with david tennant and he says oh yeah david's fine if you like that sort of thing 
I liked um I like the story that when Russell rang him, he apparently said, well, let me see the script. And (laughs) honest, I swear to God, this is true. But my grandmother, the saintly queen, well, not saintly at all, uh, nothing to do with saintliness, um, but she uh, was Queen Pat. She died at 97, uh, about 18 months ago. And a few years before that, I'd kept saying, I really want to do, I want to put you in a show, Graham. We should do a show. And she said, well, I would have to have approval of the script. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> she was like 91, 92 at the time, still going, because she used to do theatre back in yeah. uh, back in the day. It's a sort of and delightful cliche well. of, of uh, old actors mm. in retirement homes. You, go, mm. you see, Carol got asked to be dying old woman. I, I could be <laughs> dying old woman. Well, get my agent on the phone. I, I, why wasn't I seen for dying old woman? I mean, that's the thing. Like, I can't imagine, you know, being 97 or 92 or 93 as, as Bernie Cribbins was. But, I, I you know, y- y- your core personality doesn't leave you. You just no. age. And it's like yes. I'm, I'm, I, I, I can totally see myself going, well, why can't I get that role? I can do that role. <laughs> um, no, but he was wonderful and um, uh, it was I, I was looking up that he actually died because in the behind the scenes, Tom, that you were mentioning, um, that they they talked about how hot it was when they were filming yeah. this episode because it July was middle of summer. Year. Yeah, but he died on July the twenty seventh because I looked it up, and so he must have filmed that days before he died. Something like that, yeah. Like maybe weeks at a mo- at most, but that was so soon before he died. Like, that's extraordinary. Like what a wonderful you know, final piece to camera. And he had that, like, that really sweet look that he always had when the doctor arrived away. It was that sort of pride mixed with tears and, oh, yeah. And, of course, and he's he, only, I think he's only in this because the actor playing Donna's dad died. Uh, and so he, he shot one scene and uh, they had more stuff they wanted that character to do, so they knew they were going to have to go back and reshoot. And rather than recast Donna's dad, they retconned, uh, Bernard Cribbins' character from Voyage of the Damned as her granddad. Ah, wow. That's how that came about. Okay, yeah. that's amazing. But what a good call. Like, I don't know. I feel like you, you, as actors, if you stick around for that long, once you get into your 80s, you know, 70s and 80s, like you're, just, you're kind of untouchable. You know, I think that people... Yeah, people sort of forget or don't know you, like particularly I guess for women, you know, you, you have this period where you kind of, you're no longer young enough to be the heroines and the ingenues and whatever and you might get bad guy roles or something or, you know, mums or something. But then once you get like past 60, 65, you can get some really good stuff. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it must be a joy to be a, to be an older actor if you've got the stamina and health, I guess, and it was so good that he was able to to do just that one little bit. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, I've got a, a, a great deal of love for uh, Bernard Cribbins and and not just for the Doctor Who connection. Um, and uh, it, it's particularly nice, obviously, that, you know, his connection goes all the way back to the Dark Invasion movie. Yes. Uh, back in the 60s. Uh, so there's a there's a huge swathe of, of, of connection there and uh, the further appearances uh, in the noughties even, you know, just cement that. Um, yeah, it's a sort of yeah delightful little stinger at the end, um, and effectively it's sort of the yeah the only real callback in the episode to anything from the sixty year history. Seeing as it's you know nominally one of the sixtieth anniversary specials, and again that's one of the things people were complaining. Various people are complaining, going, "Oh, this is not a sixtieth anniversary thing," and you kind of go, "Yeah, I mean, what 
I, I don't, in terms of when, you know, Ross was saying that whole, oh, you know, people imagining Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi thing turning up. Yeah. The, the bit that I kind of find baffling with that is going, I can't, it can't really be that, given literally two episodes ago, you had all, yes. you had all of the doctors in the classic era. You, yeah, it, it's what, just doing that again mm. would seem like the laziest thing imaginable. Yes, it's not a particularly celebratory thing. Um, but uh, unless you were talking celebrating Russell T. Davis' yes. era mm. particularly. Um, but even then, it's not really doing that, apart from just bringing some people back. It, it's quite nice to just go, yeah, just have some fun episodes. Because yeah. I don't know what they can do that 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 really would be a yeah we we had that we had that with the power of the dog yeah but also yeah the, and, the, the yeah uh, the, I can't kind of wrap my head around fans saying on the sixth anniversary I would like to see an old doctor and an old <laughs> companion come back you know, well I don't know about you I'm staring at David Tennant and Catherine Tate <laughs> yeah what are you watching. <laughs> And we've got Bonnie Langford next yeah. week. Fill your boots. Uh, well, At least. There might be others. I don't know. But, you know, we know Bonnie Langford. Well, and you make a really good point about the power of the Doctor because I'd, I'd forgotten, as I say, my memory is trash. But, yeah, you had all the older Doctors, you had Sylvester McCoys. And, uh, Three episodes ago, we had the Sea Devils. Yeah. But also we had that with the 50th anniversary. We had kind of the big one episode to celebrate and you brought in. Yeah. John Hurt and you know Rose Tyler and like we had yeah. we had the big thing for fifty, you know sixty is another ten years on. I'm sure for the hundredth anniversary but, they'll do something really yes. crazy. <laughs> this this is the other thing. Sixtieth anniversary, it's not a oh. thing. <laughs> it's not a thing. It, it's like twenty five. <laughs> yeah, I can go that thirty. Yeah, let's go forty. Uh, borderline fifty. Yeah, fifty's a good one. Sixty, no. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it, it, you can not that it's not, not worth celebrating, but it's it's just like it's sixty. It's, don't yeah. act as if suddenly this is like everybody's favorite yeah. frigging number. It's, it's like just, your thirty um, third birthday. It's you know like hey, yeah, it's, great. Exactly. It, it's yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> actually, from a birthday perspective, when I hit sixty, I gotta go. Okay, okay I can. I, it, it's retirement age, not quite. It's you know not not I don't according know to this I, government. I I'm an Am I right, kids? I'm an, yeah. I'm an actor and a writer. I I, I I don't like look at retirement ages, but it's um, yes, yeah, it's a bit going. Well, okay, they're retiring, so yeah, they can like put their feet up, have a quiet one. Mm. That's what they want. That's what they've gone for. Uh, but yes, is that your list done, Tom, or did you have more. anything else? Uh, I had um, Mavity, we talked about that. I had um, David and Catherine, we just kind of talked about that. And then the last thing I wrote was quick, quick, slow. Uh, and one of the things I loved about this is not only is the mystery part of the solution, why is everything moving so slowly, it's also precisely calibrated for this doctor. You know, searching for words to describe the 10th slash 14th doctor, one of the words you come up with is quick, fast. Uh, mm. And that speed is his, so specific his to him. Is literally Alonzi. Alonzi, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and making that uh, part of the problem, part of the solution, having to speed the countdown up in order to mm. uh, incapacitate the evil usses, uh, I just thought was uh, absolutely brilliant. And that whole end sequence, I just thought worked oh, amazingly. Mm. I, I think. I'll tell you one thing that, that it struck me with that, which is that there is a degree to which this is Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> okay? Now, because what's the common thing people say about Raiders of the Lost Ark? Or one of the common things people say about it. One of the things where people say is, 
I, d- I don't n- think it's entirely an issue, and it's not entirely true. If, I think if you kind well, of think about yeah, it, yeah, the, the tropey thing is that uh, um, the Indiana Jones character uh, has no role in the narrative, and things would have been the same if he wasn't there. Which I agree with you. I don't think it's true, but people do say that it's not entirely true. It's it's also not true. Well, the, the theory is that if he wasn't there, the Nazis would defeat themselves. Yes, and the, the the thing that he definitely does is he finds the right position for the the staff which definitely means that they probably wouldn't have found the Ark eventually if he hadn't done that. So there's a degree to which uh, both of them have the same thing, mm. plotting-wise, which is, um, in effect, the the the, the, the um, prize is out of the villain's hands until the hero turns up and screws yep. things up. Because mm. basically, the villains, when they arrive at the beginning, the villains are defeated. They don't know they are yet. Nobody knows they are yet. Uh, that if, if they just hadn't arrived there the villains would have been destroyed completely and it wouldn't have been a problem for anyone. Um, so they cause a problem by turning up. Uh, yes. Because the, and, it's, and to be fair as well, they only really cause that problem in the last few minutes of the, of the episode because they realise what's going on and that, they, that the villains are about to be defeated. So that's a slightly weird thing of going, if, if the tension and the build of all of that, uh, when you actually look at what the actual threat is, it's there right at the end. There's no actual threat apart from to them in theory. There's a tiny bit of... Um, I think creative. Um, well, I think J. Michael Straczynski said this thing about post-creative rationalization. I think it was where you come up with a plot and then you justify it afterwards. And there's a few beats in that where I think uh, you get the vibe of, of Russell T. Davis kind of saying, "Oh, okay, um, we'll just have these people." And, they, and so they say, "Why, why, why are you scaring us then?" Oh, because it makes our minds run faster. And you, it just about works if you squint. <laughs> yeah, but it, it feels a little bit like. It feels a little bit like okay, we haven't really got a plot for this as, as such. It's 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 a structurally interesting thing on that because it, it reminds me in several ways of uh, I mean one of the ones that leaps out is, is Flatline. Yeah, which I rewatched um, the other day actually just for fun. Yeah, Flatline's great. Uh, one of the things that's interesting, and I'm not saying this is a problem because I think it's an interesting approach, is you never fig- you never know what the villains in Flatline want. You'd never really learn anything about them, and you never find out what they want, and that's. Uh, kind of gives it a different vibe and a different energy. Um, I'm not 100% sure that aspect worked with it, but I think it can work. In this one, you get a much clearer idea of what they are theoretically after, but the actual potential of it is. But then the obvious one that, that it leans to is Midnight. And I did think when I watched mm. this going, oh, this is Midnight Squared, mm. isn't it? Mm. Um, like almost literally. Um, not that it was a doppelganger thing, but it was another identity thing. Uh, going on in, in, in Midnight and had a very similar vibe, just in a slightly more expansive and wide-ranging way. Again, not saying that's a bad thing because it's a flatline of Midnight, I think, are both terrific. Midnight is based on claustrophobia, and if anything, this one's based on agoraphobia, uh, with that, mm-hmm. that terrifyingly endless corridor. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I just thought that was that was an interesting angle to look at. I think one thing one thing I did find interesting as well was I kind of looked up because when they, they landed the TARDIS and um, and they said, well, why did they play Wild Blue Yonder? Uh, I missed that playing. Completely. Me too. I, I, I have to rewatch it again. Me too. And I missed it. I went on to I, I went on to uh, Spotify and listened to Wild Blue Yonder um, out of curiosity afterwards. Um, I went on to not YouTube. Really being aware of. Yeah, I've not really yeah. been aware of ever having heard it. And I, I genuinely think after having heard it go, oh, I wouldn't have minded a bit more of that in the in in the instrumental music of the episode because it's, it's got that kind of um, sort of forced marching jollity that is um, a little bit creepy, particularly if it's offsetting uh, the, the, what the imagery, imagery would have been. The sort of, it feels like the music is pretty standard Murray Gold. And I think a tiny bit of... Uh, um, 
gross notes of that and that sort of uh, Columbo and uh, and how much is that doggy in the window kind of playing in every now and then in this score because it, it's there's something so jolly but also creepy about the actual tune I, I kind of wish I'd heard more of it I missed it as well and I went onto YouTube to listen to it afterwards and after I listened to it I thought if you'd have told me that was a parody song that somebody created saying make a really heroic <laughs> anthem for the US Air Force <laughs> like that's what you would come up with and then I was like okay it makes a bit more sense it was created in you know for world war ii or the 30s or 40s or something okay they were a bit more jolly and sincere back then but i was watching it going what and then i was thinking was it a was it a kind of pitch to the american audience that that's why they were picking that song um but i didn't really think and you make a really good point about the creepiness of it i guess mm. um yeah the, the sort it's of the so it's so forcibly jolly but it's also mm. got this really kind of weird sort of rising um, march to it. So, yeah, yeah, and, we're coming. And, uh, we're, we're, yeah, we're just men of the sky. Yeah, we're that coming. Have, that would have scared the crap out of me, is what I'm basically saying. So yeah, <laughs> and it was and it was pretty scary already. So yeah, um, that's my list. Well, covered a lot of similar things. Uh, gravity. Uh, I wrote what the what the what the what the Sir Isaac Newton um, loved getting rid of the Sonic. Always fun when the Doctor has to use his brain, which in this instinct instance is what caused all the trouble, as you said, John. Like if they'd have just stood there going, "Well, we don't know what's going to happen," and I guess they might have the penny might have dropped when the robot eventually got to the button and was waiting there. Um, this I think is is good storytelling. Uh, it's not uh, it's not poor. It's this uh, extra level of irony. Uh, that we are now dealing with a problem of our own unwitting making. I think it's terrific. Yeah. It's lovely. Yeah. Much yeah. more interesting oh, than yeah. was... an, an, uh, an evil moustache-twirling villain who's trying to do an evil thing yeah. unless we stopped. Oh, just us coming here is what caused yeah. all this drama. Yeah. Um, it's the I... arrogance thing, and that's why it's got a similar vibe with Midnight, hasn't it? Because at least part of the problem with Midnight is that the Doctor wanders around being an arrogant cock until yeah. it bites him in the arse. <laughs> and, and in this, it's the Doctor's here. We've got to explore. There's going to be a problem. And, oh, okay, if we if we hadn't done that, then uh, there w things would have been fine. And in the, in the kind of late David Tennant, early Matt Smith years, uh, there was a bit of a glut, I thought, of the problem turns out to be a an otherwise benign automated system run amok, um, which sort of starts in uh, the Doctor dances, but then keeps coming back thereafter. And it, it, like Curse the of, Black Spot has it. I can't yeah, exactly. There's a few others, yeah. Uh, the, 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 um, uh, the girl who waited, uh, it, there's a few like that, and it just became too many. It became the, the same solution again and again and again. What I love about this is, mm. yeah, I said it's not... It's not uh, the master uh, waxing his moustache and tying down onto the railway tracks, but nor is it uh, that that particular version uh, of this trope. It's actually something new. I also loved how they made a hero out of the uh, the captain. Yeah, you know when you see this sort of quite terrifying footage, like footage, terrifying vision of the astronaut with no helmet and the face is is equine like. I guess some you know uh some kind of alien species um who's quickly identified as a as a she um i love that the doctor clocked on and was like oh you you're amazing you did this you sacrificed yourself to stop this you knew you worked it out just in time to put yourself out in the airlock i mean that's quite a complicated um 
explanation and it's also quite dark you know for kids watching you know that's quite a dark thing to go oh, you had to sacrifice yourself and you, you know she killed herself to do this and they use those terms they use the term you know she killed herself before that the 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 were they the not things not not things not not us I, what did i, I call them i, I call them evil us's because i like bill and ted evil us's <laughs> ah Yes, good call. Um, but, yeah, so I like that they kind of made the point that someone had already solved the mystery before the Doctor got there, and that was like, I don't know, I just I, I like that that moment. Um, I wanted to ask you both about why did the Doctor choose the wrong Donna? Was it purely to have kind of the um, the, that sort of you know, last minute say, you know, to put Donna in, in the real Donna in peril of, of being exploded um, and then have that kind of saving moment that he comes back for it. But at the same time, I was like, but the doctor, like to me, I was expecting the doctor to be able to identify the real Donna. Having said that, they did set it up. I'm talking myself out of my own argument here, but they did set it up with those wonderful back and forth conversations earlier on where they, it, twice they were having arguing with each other you know, the bad one of each other um, to to sort of try and work out and, and the Doctor was struggling. So I guess that makes it makes sense. But I, I I don't know. I just thought by that point the Doctor should have realised or... But, well, know. they did say that it was, a, that, that by that point it was like 99.9% spot on. It was just a yeah. tiny fraction of longer. So, yeah. Yeah. So um, I think that's that's the intent of that in theory. Um. But it's, yeah, I think, I, I don't know, I sort of feel like maybe Donna should have come because he was holding her and they were kind of cuddling under the TARDIS console there for a while, just, you know, shell-shocked. And I sort of thought that she should have been like a, you know, skinny man, how did you not know it was me? Or, you know, having yeah. having a reaction of like, you bloody bugger. <laughs> I don't know, something something of that, like something very Donna-ish to say, like, how could you not remember? It was like, it was yeah, 99. she wasn't livid with him, which was a tiny bit of a It was 99.9% you. Um Okay, well, I mentioned the TARDIS, but the TARDIS ex machina appearing there once it was like the the TARDIS will know when the danger is past and will come back. That was cute. Um, can I also ask you, gentlemen, what the salt thing was about? Because we had the moment with the salt where the Doctor is trying to trick them into believing there's a superstition. Um, yeah. And, and he says, then I later, wish I hadn't done that. He says, I wish I hadn't it's, done it's, that. It's going to be set up for something. It's either this is what lets the toy maker back in um, or it's something further because, you know, we, we are yet to figure out. I mean, this is one of the advantages I think they've had doing the specials and then straight into uh, the Shooty Gatwell run uh, is that, you know, so when the when the Meep talks about it, incidentally, just to correct Tom, Tom earlier, it is not Beep the Meep. It's not. It is the Meep. <laughs> the Meep. Yeah. And it is the Beep of all Meeps. The Beep is, the, is its title. It's, oh. The species, yeah. So it is the meep, but it is beep of all meeps. Um, so yeah, you're looking, you're looking at me weirdly. It's, it's true, but anyway. But the meep's talking about having a boss, yes, uh, which is a setup for something, and the, and there's clearly a setup for something here as well. Um, but uh, we have yet to find out, and whether we've yet to find out whether that is a setup for the first shooty Gatwa season or a setup for the the celestial toy maker. I mean, I'm very aware that, that, that there's been a lot of things, particularly in relation to the Christmas special with their goblins and, and Davina McCall uh, being sort of cited as in, in photos where people have said, oh, 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 that leak 
that leak that we weren't sure if it was true or not is true. And, you know, this bit going, well, don't read leaks, you idiots. <laughs> I, I've kind of like, I think I like saw the leak and then didn't read it. I, but it's one of the noises of everyone sharing it on the social medias and you go, don't, why are you doing that? Mm. Why are you doing that? Not everybody wants to see this crap. Um, so, yeah, it was, um, I think it's very much a setup for something, but I'm not sure what that is. I just, I felt that the, the sort of the, yeah, wish I hadn't done that. Anyway, it's fine. It, 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 it was fine, you know, but it was kind of like signpost, signpost. It, it just, you know, I feel like maybe a sort of offhanded, I wonder if that was the right thing to do as the doctor kind of ran off going, oh, that didn't work. Probably wasn't the right thing to do. You know, I don't know. It might have been integrated a bit better. It, it definitely felt signposty to me, but. Um, and it was a slightly odd moment to the two when it happened. Uh, mm. We're sort of used to the trope of the doctor having voluminous pockets, which are no doubt bigger on the inside, uh, and being able to <laughs> whatever he needs. But usually it's out of a big coat. Uh, and here, mm. I wasn't even wearing a jacket, and yet suddenly he's got this yeah. rather ordinary looking salt shaker in his hand. It is weird. Mm. Uh, do you know the story about Star Trek and salt shakers? No. So the very first broadcast episode of Star Trek back in the 60s had a creature who craved salt. And so in order to make the plot work, the crew of the Enterprise needed to be shown salting their food. So this raised the question, what does a 23rd century salt shaker look like? Uh, and uh, so a, an enterprising uh, props guy went out scouring local Los Angeles flea markets and market stalls and bric-a-brac shops and so on and came back with uh, a dozen or more very peculiar looking objects, all of which he was assured could be used to season food, but none of them looked like salt shakers. So this creates a problem because now if you're going to use it in the scene, someone has to pick it up and say, uh, would you like some salt on your food? Here, take this salt <laughs> shaker because that's what this definitely is because it doesn't look like a salt shaker. Or they just have to use ordinary salt shakers and go, well, maybe that was a design that just couldn't be improved upon. Uh, they went with the latter, uh, but uh, as the slightly crestfallen props guy was turning to go, the producer said, uh, but don't throw those objects away. Uh, they are now Dr. McCoy's operating instruments. <laughs> we can always repurpose. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Uh, and they, they were Invention. they were all repurposed as props for uh, DeForest Kelly to use to, uh, to save Aww. countless lives. <laughs> But not God if you were having you, DeForest Kelly. Yeah, just I, not if you're having a cholesterol issue though, exactly. because the the salt would just yeah. yeah. I want to ask you, gentlemen, another question about the doctor, and this is is no, related. no, no. You can't. <laughs> I plead the fifth. I'm Please. not saying anything until my lawyer gets here. Yeah. <laughs> um, Never met him. Never heard of the guy. <laughs> doctor who? Um, <laughs> the. <laughs> Um, related to something he says in this episode, but then in just a general question about the whole nature of is it the 10th Doctor back or is it the 14th Doctor? And obviously it's the 14th Doctor that's now canon, but the Doctor refers to having the same face back. But it's not just the face, it's the personality. Because he says Alonzi, he wears a similar outfit. He, you know, his hair has gone slightly up, but, you know, he's still kind of the spunky, fast, as you said, Tom, earlier, the quick Doctor, the speedy Doctor. Um but then in this episode, we have him saying, you know, oh, yes, Isaac Newton was hot or oh, definitely hot. And then having a moment of going, oh, is that that's new? Oh, I say that now. Something to that effect. And I'm I'm I don't know if I'm, I'm sort of weirdly conflicted about the doctor, the kind of the sexuality stuff coming into the doctor, because to my mind, the doctor's always been this. And I, I mean, look, as we talked about last week, you know, society changes. Um, but the doctor was always kind of this removed from a 
what I consider, I guess, like, you know, human sexuality and human wants and desires. And in fact, with David Tennant, that was half the reason that things like, you know, he got into trouble. Oh, I suppose David Tennant had a big thing for Rose, didn't he? But like with Martha, he couldn't because uh, maybe it's okay because it's the Tennant doctor and he seemed to be more, I guess, attracted to people. But um, yeah, maybe I'm, maybe I'm it, it, it's, yeah, there's, there's a, <laughs> retracting. There's a weird kind of arc because, yeah, compared to most of his predecessors, the original 10th tenant doctor seemed a bit more kind of human, virile, kind of... Yeah, you know, a bit sexy. Available in that way. DTB. <laughs> he was DTB. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, Matt Smith's doctor was much more uh, withdrawn, awkward, uh, didn't even want to uh, entertain the possibility that a married couple uh, under his roof uh, might be enjoying each other's company. And then that's pushed even further with um, Stephen Moffat's version of the Capaldi Doctor, where uh, he can't say, I'm sorry for your loss without it being written for him on a card. Uh, yeah. Which uh, is then, I think, done rather, e even more clumsily, humorously and insultingly with uh, Jodie Whittaker's Doctor being unable to give someone a hug. Um, yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, so I think, again, this is partly throwing the leaf about the other way. It could be a setup for something else. It could be a one-off remark. I think overall I do prefer it when uh, the Doctor is uh, kind of uh, removed from these more base concerns. Um, it seems unlikely uh, that uh, he would be too stirred by this kind of thing. Uh, but I... Uh, I, I, I trust I trust in RTD uh, and I'm uh, I'm, still, <laughs> I, I'm I'm I, 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 like I said it's fine if it's throwaway remark because it doesn't mean anything it's fine if it's leading to something because that could be interesting and exciting because I'm always of the opinion that it's like why does it have to be noted if a man finds another man hot it's like oh, well, you can we're just we're human you can appreciate I can quite happily oh, tell you I think these women are very beautiful and attractive and you know so I sort of thought her going. I was hot and then him going yeah he was hot he was hot and then the fact that it got commented on like yeah. he commented on his own reflection i, I think it, if anything it's that sense of it's this weirdness of kind of um men refusing to admit um that, that, that they can tell when another man is good looking you can tell when you know i mean there's a, there was i think it's a great reggie hunter line or something like that when he says you know if you can't tell how, when a man looks good how the hell do you get dressed in the morning <laughs> uh, you know you know, you, you you can tell, and and it and and the amount of guys who kind of like suddenly get all weird about that when you kind of go, no, just there are some very good looking men, and you're allowed to know that they're good looking men. It it doesn't mean anything, uh, and and uh, yeah, it, it's very weird. But I think you can you can read the doctor's uh, momentary confusion at oh that came out of my mouth as oh I find people hot now. Uh, it doesn't have to be, I'm yeah, a, a male-presenting Time Lord finding uh, male-presenting 17th century uh, yeah. uh, scientific innovators hot. But is it, you know, is the return to this face a return to the same? Because obviously he's got experience. He, he talks about having, he was other people. And when Donna asks him, which is it's also on my list to ask you, but he says a lot. So he has these memories, but he's still gone back to that personality. Like, wouldn't it be interesting if you had, you know, David Tennant, but with his natural Scottish accent and wearing a different outfit and being slow moving. And like, that's, to me, that's the sort of the different face versus different personality, or it does a face and a personality, they, they, they match. 
Um, but but we need the yeah. we need to know we need to know the purpose of why this has happened, the yes. mystery of why this has happened. Um, because I I feel it's if anything it's got to be that he's been specifically rather than the face it being just the face that's come back. There's something where they basically regenerated him back into that specific figure yes. for some reason for some and reason, purpose, yeah. which I think we'll be finding out on Saturday. And <coughs> to that end, um, just to that to that end, the uh, doctor mentioned, and this was very elegantly done, so elegant that I didn't even realise it initially because I thought he said, because it, it, was, it was really interesting they had the fake Donna asking the real doctor about you, but you're not from Gallifrey you uh from somewhere else and so hinting to the the whole timeless child kind yeah. of you don't I was going to say debacle right. I'm not sure if that's fair but um hinting at that and saying you you don't know and then saying something about something and he said he says it's, it's destroyed half the universe looking very guilty and sad and then I, I thought he said the flood and I went, what What was he saying, the flood? And everyone said, no, the flux. And I went, no, 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 it was the flux. Yeah. I'm so used to hearing <laughs> Jodie Whittaker say flux with her, the you flux. know, yeah. northern English people and their shifted vowels that I heard the flood when he said the flux because, anyway, I was like, oh, the flux. <laughs> um, but all of a sudden he made it much more serious and impactful in just those few moments yeah. than it seemed to be in Jodie Whittaker's run because one of the things that Stu and I talked about in The Flux is how the first episode of The Flux is like, oh, my God, it's coming, this wave is crashing and killing half the universe, and then it moved to the second episode. And I was like, well, now we're over here and um, don't worry about the thing that's wiped out half the it, it sort of it didn't quite have the gravitas that perhaps it, it could have um, with the whole wiping out the universe. Yeah. In, in episode one, it looks like, uh, planets are being erased from creation and in the second episode it looks like a couple of bad harvests yeah <laughs> and to be fair if you're working on the farm tom a couple of bad harvests may seem like the universe is you know, being destroyed <laughs> yes. um but to someone like the doctor you know mm. perhaps um so it, it yeah so i thought that was really interesting that they they little deftly nodded to some of those more controversial or problematic Chris Chibnall elements. Which is the right thing to do. Um, There's a, a technique if you want to try and uh, convince somebody that uh, you're a mind reader, uh, that uh, towards the end of the session, you kind of uh, recap on all the things that you came up with, 90% um, of which will be things that, in fact, the sitter told you rather than the other way around. Uh, and this technique is known as reprise with gold paint. Uh, ah. where you, you retell the story of what's just happened uh, and make it make an awful lot more sense. And I've actually, uh, having learned that technique in that context, I've actually also applied it to long-form impro, uh, where yeah. three-quarters of the way through the story, uh, either in character or as a narrator, you sum up the story so far, and once again, reprise with gold paint uh, and make it yes. seem like uh, it actually all makes perfect sense. I I realise now I have done the same thing with shows, <laughs> Tom. <laughs> When you have that little ability to do a recap at the end and yep. just put things in the right order and some shows that we did, um, we used to do a show called Fists of Fury, which was like a 1930s shadow, uh, the shadow-inspired kind of um, cartoony long form where uh, there was a was set in New York or, or a city like New York anyway and you had this wealthy industrialist by day crime fighter called 
the fury by night. We had a big red glove and we had all these two-dimensional props and we had stage ninjas. So when we had fight scenes, we would have people come out and lift people up. Oh, and great. So you'd then get into a kicking position. And then as recaps, we would do just people so clever with their talents. We would do these little um, comic book style uh, summaries of the episode because we'd call them episodes. And someone would have been taking photos in the crowd um, the musician got his music over the top and then someone who had graphic design would kind of make little comic cartoons and then Greg would write and voice a narration in the style of a 1930s comic and here the, the, the pugilist friend, the Fury, would be out and about. And and anyway, and they're, you know, and you're like, wow, that what a cleverly written episode that was. But actually <laughs> the impro itself was slightly less, uh, you know, it was still good, but the, the recap allows it to be shaped and properly you know, as you said, painted. Um, that is an excellent phrase and I will, will use it henceforth. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, it did make it sound like, wow, that flux was a really interesting thing um, and he's really sad about it, like Christopher Eccleston after the Time War. Oh, and finally, just one little thing. I know we talked about Bernard um, already or Wilf already. I did love the fact that when they came out at Camden, shout out to Camden again, uh, <laughs> Cyberdog in the background, Um there, there was this lovely moment where they reunited and they had hugs and then Wilf says, oh, you, now you're here, you'll be able to stop everything. And they're like, what, what, what's wrong? And then the chaos starts. Yeah. Like I thought, I thought it was really nice for the chaos to just hold off for a few moments to give them a nice reunion and then like literally a plane crashed out of the sky <laughs> um, and all sorts of things. And some guy walked in, you know, uh, waltzing around, people waltzing around looking insane and, yeah, it was just nice that they took a little moment to lay off and then, okay, we can start being crazy now. Yeah. <laughs> yes, everyone take five right places. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the doctor's here, he's had a cuddle and go. Yeah. But, yeah, overall I thought much better modulation out of this episode into the next one than, uh, as we said at the beginning, modulation uh, out of the previous episode. Uh, and uh, uh, into Wobbly Yonder, uh, I, yes. I, I would very happily have uh, have spared myself the Isaac Newton scene. I'm really sorry, I just it just wasn't for me. <laughs> and you know what? It, it it helped to lower the bar, so this one could really <laughs> high jump, high jump right over it. Just whew, uh, you know, made it soar even even greater heights by comparison. <laughs> Which is funny when you consider that, you know, it's ironic considering it was about Newton and gravity falls. Yes, so, there see? you go. There you go. It all connects. Oh, look at me making a science <laughs> joke. <laughs> <laughs> that will be it for me in science jokes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what fun though. Yeah. I had such fun watching it. I'll tell you one thing. I did say this to one of the other people, but um, uh, I, I was very lucky, I think, that one of my recent big finish storylines I got in to be approved by the production team before the current one. Uh, because bits of it were quite similar. Because I wrote a, um, I wrote a play in a series called The Robots, which was about um, uh, um, Claire Rushbrook and Nicola Walker uh, um, waking up in their apartment and discovering another Claire Rushbrook and Nicola Walker and having to identify which ones were the real ones and which ones were the fake ones, uh, because two of them were definitely robots. Um, and, yeah, the realisation of going, oh, thank goodness that yeah. got through. Because uh, because that one I would not have yeah I I, I love that one to bits. So, was that a um, Doctor Who script? 
No, it's a Doctor Who spin-off called The Robots, oh. uh, which, which is so spin-off. It, it, it's, you know, it, it's ridiculous because it's um, set in the world of a story from the 70s called The Robots of Death oh. and featuring a companion of the Eighth Doctor who steps off, to, who, who comes from that planet and then goes back there for a year to hang out with her sister. Um, and yeah, this was like the penultimate episode of it. But I mean, that's Nicola Walker and Claire Rushbrook. I mean... Oh, oh, holy shit, oh, yes. And that's I'm the entire sorry. origin of it. It's, to be honest, this is one of the other things as well. I think when people talk about this as the 60th and why this sort of things, I wonder if, I wonder if Russell Davis had the same idea I had, which was basically when, when, when you, I was basically in, in a room where the first one of mine was like a straight play with the two of them and you're kind of finding yourself just watching this, just going, I mean, I've got Nicola Walker and Claire Rushbrook. Yeah. If I just had the two of them for an hour, what would I do? What and, if we had and, and, two? and pretty much instantly you go... Yeah, let's have what what we I think we need is more Nicola Walker and Claire Rushbrook. Oh my God, Nicola Walker uh, would I, make yeah, a you know, great doctor. She would be. Oh, I I I think that has more than crossed my mind. <laughs> I've just um, never seen I mean, her bad in anything. I, I think I, I wrote a joke in a sketch that never got broadcast, which was this idea of um, of you always. Well, it's sort of based on the, the true observation that whoever is cast as the Doctor is usually someone who would not have been in consideration the previous time. It's not yeah. it's not a hard and fast rule, but uh, but almost by definition, it, that it's got to be someone who is, I mean, a little bit cheaper for one, yeah. um, and and a bit more kind of uh, ready to break. I kind of think that someone who's too big, unless they're you know a big old school fad like Peter Capaldi, where it's probably at least a little bit in their blood. Yeah. Um, that uh, yeah, I don't. I, I, it's weird. I, I, it's a. It's more of a star making part than a star part. It's sort of the opposite of James Bond, isn't like it? Where she... almost almost all the James Bonds had been considered for the part before they were actually cast. You know, Roger Moore was considered in 1962. Mm. Timothy Dalton yeah. was considered in 1967. Pierce Brosnan was considered yeah. in 1987, and so on and so on and so on. But, but is I mean, Nicola Walker? Um, I mean, I, look, obviously in the UK, she's clearly very famous, but. I don't know if she would be as recognised, certainly in America. I feeling that some things like Annika are quite um, widely popular. Yeah, yeah. Um, I haven't got the second series of that yet. I, I know it's out. I need to watch it. It's, uh, there's so many of her it. shows that are on my list to watch. Can I tell you, with good. that show, because I was a bit put off by the whole cops but make it flea bag thing with Annika, because I've watched so many British police procedurals, you have to understand. It was so different. And I was like, I'm not sure if I'm ready for this. I, I, I don't know that I want the cop talking to me. I want them focused on their job. Uh, <laughs> they need to find yeah. some murderers. Um, that's funny. Yeah, that's good. And then in episode three, I think, guess who turns up? Paul McGann. Paul McGann. <laughs> and then I'm on board 100% committed. Uh, Paul McGann, thinking woman's crumpet and uh, will forever be. I mean, I, I, I can't, can't deny that. I think, you know, he's a, he's a very handsome man. <laughs> See? Yes. See? You, you can, can do, do it. it. I, I, you can I, do it. I, and I know Janet Fielding now, so I'm like two degrees from him again. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you have probably met him, haven't you, <laughs> So I'm also... I mean, on multiple occasions, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so between you and Janet Fielding, there, should, there has to be a way for me to meet Paul McGann in, at some point in the future. You know. Yeah, there is. It's called stalking. Mm. No, uh, no. In a non-stalkery way, I don't want to be creepy. I just want to be able to express my appreciation for his varied film and TV career from playing, you know, in with Nell and I to the terrible French 
offended man in The Three Musketeers with Kiefer Sutherland and Chris O'Donnell. And I'm sure his <laughs> minders like and his lawyers will be very happy to discuss that uh, desire <laughs> with you, should the need arise. Uh, no, no, no. I'm, not, I'm just saying, you know, as a small personal token of my affection you know maybe a lock of my hair or some fingernails just nailed through no um no i just i really he's just such a good actor but he's so charismatic on screen he's just one of those guys who's so charismatic and i i maintain and i know he's done so many audio um adventures but i still reckon that a paul mcgann tv series if if russell is 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 keen for this whole universe spin-off thing the the who see you who see you the who see you uh just Paul McGann having Doctor Adventures would be do it. Um, I think I'm done. So it was uh, a great episode. It was such a good episode. Uh, now the plan, if we can call it that, certainly from my point of view, is just to do these three uh, in this form, Nat. But uh, do you want to do you want to rank them? Oh well, I yeah. I mean, it's pretty easy to rank three. My memory is not uh, so bad that I can forget three episodes. Um, so yeah, I definitely think this would be in first place, followed by the Meep at this position. So yeah, we'll see how if next week can dethrone. Wouldn't it be great to have like increasing levels of yeah. excitement and quality? Wouldn't uh, that be uh, great? Uh, as I said, I'm, I'm going to buck the trend. Uh, I, I, I think uh, in in all ways but one, this is a better episode than the already fantastic episode one. Uh, but I have to dock it points for the incredibly silly Isaac Newton scene, uh, and so on. <laughs> for, and that, for only that reason, I'm going to put the Star Beast first uh, and this one second. Oh wow! Uh... I'm, I I didn't mind the Isaac Newton scene as much as you two. So I am, um, yeah, Wob, you, Yonder is, is my top one, very directly. I mean, don't get me wrong, I think they, they are both fun. Uh, and it's the, and, and I think I kind of had it in, I had both episodes in exactly the right environment because I watched The Star Beast at a party and, uh, and, and I watched Wild Blue Yonder at home with a couple of friends. And, mm. uh, and that was, um, it was, it was less raucous, but that's exactly matched the, the episodes themselves. Mm. It was, it was, yeah, I, I think it really um, helped the individual tone. Yeah. yeah. But surely we have to do something about with the Christmas episode, surely. I know it's a tough time of year, <laughs> but maybe after it airs or something, we'd have to come back and do some kind of recap, surely. Maybe we can Not come back, time. yeah. I don't think I can uh, <laughs> drag myself away from uh, Christmas dinner in order to do a podcast. No, no, no. On the day. <laughs> I wasn't yeah. talking... I wasn't talking about on the day itself. I just mean maybe in the in the days following oh, or right. something. Okay. something I, 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 I'm visiting my family in Stevenage, so damn fucking right I'll drag myself away from them. <laughs> the only difficulty there is going to be um, uh, whether they'll be a, finding a quiet yeah. place. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see how that works. They are. They are All right. Not. Well, it will uh, be it will be Boxing Day, I think, when it comes out on uh, here. Obviously, because uh, yeah. we are. Uh, living in the future yes. here in Australia. Um, but uh, so, yeah, we, we tend to get the episodes the morning. Well, that would make sense. So, yeah. yes, it wouldn't be a Christmas. We don't get it. It's not a Christmas Eve thing. It's a Boxing Day uh, thing or Boxing Day night. And with that, it's time to wrap up this episode of Who's Raven On slash Best Pick. It's the best kind of uh, of merger. Um, uh, the, <laughs> I'm going to start again. Is this going as well as you wanted it to? It's going so well. Oh, my God. I just I realized. No, I please just go with this one. This one's the best one. 
Have the courage of your convictions. You have been. Have the courage of your ancestors' convictions. (laughs) Hey, I'm first generation. (laughs) I have no convict past unless you. you I've got convict ancestors. There you go. You beat me. You guys having an Australian off now. Yeah, yeah, apparently. Also, I am also, I've got to be very obvious, I am stealing a joke from uh, Silver Nemesis. <laughs> so, uh, which nobody <laughs> does that no. often. That is Rarity. a great one. <laughs> well, with that stolen joke and that Australian off, it is time to wrap up this episode of Who's Raven On slash Best Pick. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed myself. Thank you so much to Tom and John for joining me. You can find out everything Best Pick. Uh, by looking at bestpickpod.com and you can find all the associate links there. Um, you can find Tom Selinski on Twitter and is it Mr. John Dorney on Twitter? Yes. 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 I got that right. Woo. Or X, sorry, X. Um, and uh, we will return next week for The Giggle with Mr. Neil Patrick Harris in a starring role, one assumes. I mean, he can't do a role that's not starring, really. He's Neil Patrick Harris. Um, thank you so much for uh, listening. The Patreon is patreon.com slash girlclumsy. Thank you so much to all my patrons. You know how much I love you. I send you messages all the time going, thank you so much. Uh, to everyone who listens, thank you so much. And we will see you next week. And as we always like to say, um, uh, Alonzi. Alonzi. <laughs>